Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I am snowed in, <laughs> Ashley McKinless. I don't know about you. I know. Me too. It is crazy. Like, cars are just behind, like, four feet of snow. Yep. We definitely had, uh, <laughs> someone said to me, like, oh, wow, winter's over, it seems like, I think, a couple weeks ago, mm, and I was like, that's no. insane. Um, <laughs> but it became true, or they, my uh, instinct was was confirmed when we got two feet of snow dumped on New York City over the mm-hmm. weekend. So, Pretty uh, fun. Yeah, but it, it does uh, lead to a great drink for us this week. <laughs> yes, we are having uh, what the New Yorker calls the sweatpant Sazerac, uh, which is basically like the Sazerac you have when you're snowed in and can't go to the liquor store to get absinthe. <laughs> yeah, we were actually like looking up uh, drinks for, we, we Googled cocktails for seasonal affective disorder, um, and this one felt perfect for us. So yep. <laughs> uh, thank you to the New Yorker for this uh, recipe. So cheers. Cheers. And uh, who are we talking to this week? We are talking with our friend, Father James Martin. Maybe you've heard of him. He's been on the show a couple of times, and he's the author of many great books on spirituality, including his latest, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Yep. It's such a fantastic book. Um, we mentioned in the interview, you know, Jim's been working on this a long time, basically as long as both Ashley and I have known and worked for him. And he's putting some like really hard-earned insights from the spiritual life into a very accessible book on prayer. And we have a delightful conversation about it, about, you know, some common reasons why people don't pray, some reasons that uh, people are resistant to it, some some things, some methods of prayer that people are surprised to find out that are actually prayer. And we also brought some of your questions. We asked you and our fa- members of our Facebook group, what questions do you have for Father James Martin on prayer? We weren't able to get to all of them, but we did get a, a bunch of them. So stick around for that. But first, we wanted to take a moment and let you know about one of our sponsors this week, the Great Courses Plus. Yes. So, Zach, did you notice that uh, quote from St. Augustine that was in Joe Biden's inaugural address? I definitely noticed it. um, And it quickly reminded me that I still haven't read uh, The City of God, which... You cannot be blamed for that. It is a very, very long book. More of a tome than a book, I would it's, say. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. Um, and I've al- it's always been on my checklist to get through. Um, mm-hmm. And I was so psyched to find out that The Great Courses Plus had an entire course on the city of God. Yes. So they have a series called Books That Matter, and they have one on the city of God that features Professor Charles Matthews of the University of Virginia, who I actually had for a Christian ethics course. So I can attest that he is a great lecturer. I'm already a few courses in on the city of God. Um, and it 
feels, you know, still super relevant. You know, <laughs> this book was inspired by the the sack of Rome and and St. Augustine uh, uh, grappling with how Christians can fit into the political order. So, yeah. And, you know, one of the great things, as we mentioned, the City of God is a giant book and can feel very daunting. But one of the great things about the Great Courses Plus is that you can stream the lectures from Professor Matthews anywhere on any device um, and really at your own pace, right? This isn't, you don't, you're, you're not in school. You don't need to, there's no homework. <laughs> there's just, you're just learning about this cool new book. So you can check out The City of God and thousands of other courses available. Um, our listeners are getting a free month when they sign up. All they have to do is visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical to get access to the City of God and thousands of other courses. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So over the weekend, Pope Francis was speaking to a group of Italian catechists, so people who teach the Catholic faith, um, where he made some interesting comments about Vatican II, that a catechist always must teach what the church teaches, and here's the interesting part, and that includes the vision and teachings of the Second Vatican Council. Yes, and he left no wiggle room. (laughs) He said, quote, this is magisterium. The council is the magisterium of the church. Either you are with the church and therefore you follow the council, or if you do not follow the council or you interpret it in your own way as you wish, you are not with the church. Yeah, that is pretty strict and harsh, (laughs) and I, I think most people are not used to Pope Francis speaking that bluntly, but mm-hmm. um, that is maybe a little bit of his Jesuit superior coming out. Um, <laughs> so we figure we take a second. First of all, what was Vatican II? I'm, I have no doubt that many listeners of the show already know this, but also lots of people don't because it's not necessarily, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but is not necessarily household knowledge, I would say. Right. So Vatican II, or the Second Vatican Council, was an ecumenical council, which is a gathering of the world's bishops and theologians. It's called by the Pope to debate issues of doctrine and practice that have implications for the entire church. Um, and they're not, they're not common. They have, in the past, you know, in the 2,000 years of the church, there have only been a little over 20, so that's about one a century. And so the Second Vatican Council was the only ecumenical council in the 20th century. Yeah, and it's impossible to quickly summarize what happened to Vatican II. Which was in the 60s, we should say. Yes, and it happened over uh, sev- several years. It's a, it's a very long meeting, if you will. Um, But if you're unfamiliar, the most visible difference for most people was the changing of the liturgy from Latin into people's vernacular language. Um, But there are also several monumental theological and practical decrees that came out of that council that we're really still debating today uh, in a religious dialogue, the role of the laity in the true mission of the church. Right. And so why is Pope Francis bringing this up uh, over 50 years later? Um, it's partly because there's still resistance to the council. You know, you may like hear people identify as Vatican II Catholics or pre-Vatican II Catholics um, because there there are portions of the church that saw um, maybe agree with with the, the letter of Vatican II, but saw in the years after it, you know, maybe being taken to excesses and or places they didn't expect it to go. So it's still it's still a matter of debate in Catholic circles whether um, whether Vatican II was a good thing. But Pope Francis is clearly saying, like, actually, no, this is not up to debate. It's it's a council and you got to accept it. It's funny because I feel like some of these debates were especially maybe a generation above ours, like that this is where most of the fighting happened. But Mm -hmm. um, 
these are the people that taught us. And so we're still, you know, in fact, in college, I'm pretty sure that we turned, uh, anytime a professor mentioned the, the spirit of Vatican II, you had to take a drink. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if anyone else had that experience, but um, I think it's obviously important because it has huge implications for the way the church operates around the world and on the local level today. Um, but it's probably probably worth us getting into on an episode eventually, I think. Yeah, I think we need to bring on a Vatican II expert to really break this down. So Stay tuned. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. What's our next story, Ashley? On Sunday, Pope Francis announced the establishment of a World Day of Grandparents and the Elderly, which will be marked each year on the fourth Sunday of July. Yeah, which is the feast day of Saints Joachim and Anne, who were Jesus's grandparents. Um, I don't know if I've never I don't think I've ever thought about the fact that Jesus had grandparents. Yeah, it's uh, I've, I've always really loved that. Um, grandparents are have always been important mm -hmm. in my life. Um, and it, it's nice to, you know, Jesus was human, had a mom and dad on earth and also some grandparents, which I've always just loved that little detail. Yeah. And Pope Francis throughout his papacy has, has talked about the wisdom that uh, the younger generations uh, should look to uh, from their, from their grandparents uh, who he describes as the link between generations passing on the experience of life and faith to the young. Um, and he's talked about this a lot, especially in the context of the coronavirus, which has exposed what Pope Francis calls a throwaway culture in terms of how we treat our elders. Like, you know, <laughs> they have been in nursing homes for a very long time, but it wasn't until this year until people really started thinking about how the, how terribly lonely that can be when you don't have contact with the outside world. Yeah, last July, uh, sort of, I don't know, when the pandemic was still ramping up, I, I suppose, um, on this feast day, Francis encouraged young people to make some concrete gestures of tenderness to the elderly in their lives, um, finding some safe ways, but creative ways to reach out to them, people who are in nursing homes, um, who don't have a lot of contact with the outside world. Right. And inspired by the Pope's words, uh, the Dicastery for Lady, the Family, and Life launched a campaign called The Elderly Are Your Grandparents, uh, whether you're related to them or not, uh, which encouraged young, young people around the world uh, to do something to show kindness and affection for older people who may feel lonely. Um, and with the announcement to, uh, on Sunday about this new day for um, grandparents and the elderly, it seems like Pope Francis is trying to ensure that the hard-earned lessons uh, of the pandemic um, aren't forgotten when things go back to normal and we don't just go back to the status quo of not turning to our elders with with affection and and to learn from them and to ensure that they're they're interconnected with the rest of society. from New York City is Father James Martin. Jim is the author of many wonderful books, including A Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything and, most recently, Learning to Pray. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jim. Great to be back. So good to have you back. Is this number four? I think so. It's. And how long have you guys been doing this? How long has it been? This is going to sound uh, great. I think it's almost four years. Wow. Is it? Was it 2017? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Was I, was I, your, was I your first guest? Yeah. Wow. You were, you were the first guest. Yeah. 
We've been doing this show almost as long as you've been working on this book. Um, <laughs> well, you know, Zach, but, you, you really um, made me think the other day when you said I'd been working on the book for as long as you'd been here, right? At America. Is that right? Yep. yep. And that's how long. Wow. Yeah, it's. I've been here six. It'll be six years this year. Yeah, so, there you go. So yeah, took a while. Well, congratulations. It's a, it's really like uh, it's a ma- it's very thorough. It's very readable, um, and you can tell you've been like putting your 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 heart and soul into it. To use a a, a glib phrase, but it's, it's a, the book is anything but glib. Thank um, you. No. Appreciate it. Though I checked the index and I didn't see my name in there, so I just. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, have you heard? That's called, I think, the Oxford read. Have you heard that? <laughs> see if I'm read. cited, I, right? Yeah. You you look in the footnotes and the. In the back. <laughs> Well, it was very nice yeah. of you to change all the uh, incriminating uh, details about uh, being bad at prayer from mm-hmm. from my my experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you you've written so many books on on, on prayer and spirituality in particular. Um, my life with the saints, the Jesuit guide, Jesus, a pilgrimage. Uh, why did you want to move towards a book on prayer, a topic that is so broad that this you know this book could have been two thousand pages even? Well, I touched on prayer a little bit in the Jesuit Guide, um, you know, in a chapter or two, and I just felt that there was a need for much uh, deeper um, opening up of the topic. And one of the main things I wanted to talk about is in the book is what happens when you pray, because truly, I've read so many books, as I'm sure both of you had, on prayer and spirituality. And you've you've gone to lectures, and there's very little um, in the literature about what actually happens when you close your eyes. Right? It's you know, when I was a Jesuit novice, I would read books. They would talk about the fruits of prayer or, you know, a Jesuit novice would say to me, oh, I felt God inviting me to do this. And I thought, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> Right. What, so what you're just left mean? feeling crazy wondering if yeah. what's happening inside your head is real, crazy, fake. Yeah. And also, am I supposed to hear voices or see visions or what, what does mm-hmm. this person mean when they talk about feeling close to God? So that was one of the uh, main impetuses of the book to, to really tell people, and, you know, based on my experience as someone who prays and also as a spiritual director, you know, what can you expect? Like what happens when you close your eyes. So that was, that was one of the focuses or foci of the book. Yeah. You also, you start it with this invitation to, it's a very, it's written for, I'd say pretty wide audience, you know, people mm-hmm. who have never prayed, who people who pray and want to go deeper, people who are like interested. Um, and it kind of it has that invitation to like get them over the hump. Um, mm-hmm. exactly. So what, what would you say from your experience is what are those common barriers that keep people from praying and how do you counsel them? Well, that's a that's a great question. I think the biggest barrier, um, it, it, two two barriers. One is people who have never prayed and assume that it's for someone else, right? Like I'm no I'm no Pope Francis. I'm or no Saint Jim Paul. Martin. Well, <laughs> that's right. They probably don't say that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm not holy. I'm not a saint. I I can't do that. And the second is so they just reject it out of hand. And the second is for people who have tried it and they close their eyes and they feel like nothing's happening or they don't know what to do, mm-hmm. um, or they pray for something and they don't get it. So they feel like they've failed in some way. And, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that those kinds of dry moments hap- happen to everyone. And and it's just, you know, it's like riding a bike. Sometimes you're going to fall off, right? But eventually you, you get the hang of it. And you know that, you know, sometimes it's bumpy, sometimes it's smooth. Uh, sometimes you're pedaling uphill, sometimes you're, you know, coasting downhill. Um, but yeah, those are the two biggest misconceptions. They really do, they really prevent... I would say, you know, almost the majority of people who are believers from from truly praying. I mean, you know, people pray in their own way and it's it's wonderful, but I'm talking about kind of personal contemplative prayer, which is what the focus of the book is. One of the most uh, foundational questions you you ask 
your readers, and I can confirm you also do this in real life, is asking what's their image of God? Mm-hmm. Why is that, and why does that influence us? Some, what someone's prayer life is like so much. Well, you know, if you think, um, another good question, if you think that God is the judge, right, and uh, your prayer life is dry or you close your eyes, nothing happens, you probably feel judged, right? That I am clearly not doing it right or God's like the taskmaster or one of my friends memorably said, I love this image, God is the parole officer, Right. So, which is great because, you know, you've already sinned. You've already done something terrible. And God's kind of on the lookout for you to do something worse. And if you have that image of God, or if your parents have been, you know, judgmental or exacting, uh, or it's all about performing, right? We all have, we all come from, you know, dysfunctional families all in different ways. Then it influences how you think about God and it influences your prayer. And so I sometimes invite people to, change their image of God, maybe to look at Jesus more. And sometimes I'll say, you know, Zach, if you were coming to me for direction, I would say, you know, is this Zach's God? Is this the God that lives in Zach's brain? Or is this God, right? And a lot of it is also inviting people to encounter God in their own lives and be attentive to the ways that God, not, you know, for example, Zach's God uh, is really encountering them. And in that way, you can open them up to seeing God, the, the actual God who wants to encounter them. There's like a funny thing that happens, I think, because at the same time we're building up these images of God and what we think prayer is supposed to be, we're also going through experiences in life that really are authentic prayer, but we Mm -hmm. don't we're too embarrassed to admit that they Mm -hmm. they are. And so you have this like sort of like self reinforcing like that's the the stuff that's good is not real, and the stuff that is bad is the real thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. You know, if I sort of call out to God and say, help me, right? I mean, that that's a prayer, right? Mm-hmm. If I am looking at a sunset and I feel moved and I wonder uh, if God is involved in this or I thank God, you know, that's, that's prayer. And, and I think people don't give themselves the credit for praying. Um, a friend of mine, a guy, a guy named Bob Gilroy, a Jesuit who died quite young in his life a couple of years ago, he said to me once, I love this image, and I think I put it in the book, that people have experiences of God, but they're not encouraged to talk about them. I really like that. There, there's no one to say, yeah, hey, that was an experience of God, or have you ever considered that that might be an experience of God in your life? And so once you, I think for me, the key with uh, people who come to me in direction who may not have had a whole lot of experience is to say, look at where God already is, right? Not like I'm going to impose this thing on you, but Look where God is already speaking to you and just helping them to notice a little bit. Yeah. One thing I appreciated about the book is that you do, you kind of like encourage people to look for where God is already working and where you are already praying and didn't notice it. But at the same time, you you do have some, I don't know, boundaries of what is and isn't prayer. And in one place you talk about the danger of saying like, my work is my prayer, mm. um, which is something I've definitely... <laughs> done before um so you say if everything you do is prayer then why take time out to pray um Mm -hmm. so like that felt like personal attack (laughs) (laughs) in parentheses ashley (laughs) mckinless but but really we do have a lot of listeners who are you know quote-unquote professional catholics who you know Mm -hmm. dedicate their lives to the church from nine to five and then like there's the temptation to be like do I really have to like give another hour before or after work? Um, or that like prayer yeah. is actually going to lead me to burnout. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, those are, those are two good questions. The the first is, you know, I, in the book, I talk about, you know, your relationship with God um, being seen as, uh, you know, analogously to a relationship with a good friend. And so, you know, for example, so uh, the three of us work together, or at least we were in the same office before the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Now I could say, well, I see Ashley and Zach all the time. Right. I mean, why do I need to, you know, why would I need to spend like one-on-one time with them? Right. But if you really want to, you know, go deeper in a friendship, you do carve out that time for one-on-one intentional time, which is just different. It's not to say that you can encounter God in your work or in your day-to-day life, you know, by no means. I mean, that's part of Jesuit spirituality. It's saying that that one-on-one time, that intentional time is really, is really important. And it's really, it's something that you can't kind of let go of if you want the relationship to deepen. And to to Zach's question about another thing, kind of another burden, I think, you know, that in that situation, you have to invite people to uh, maybe let go of some of the sort of shoulds in prayer, right? S-H-O-U-L-D-S. Uh, my old spiritual director used to call it shoulding all over yourself. <laughs> and, you know, you know, prayer should be like this, or I have to do it this way, or, you know, simple, something simple as if I don't, if I don't feel results, I'm doing it wrong. You can just, sometimes I just say to people, can you just sit in God's presence? And that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a lovely thing to do. And it's, it's not another burden usually. Yeah. Now you're pretty frank about you sort of being a total uh, noob when it comes to prayer up until even through when you you sort of decide to become a Jesuit. Um, so you enter the Jesuits when you're 27, which um, mm-hmm. is an age close to uh, many of our listeners. I'm 27 also. Um, there you go. It's not too late. <laughs> I think my wife might <laughs> have wife, something to say with might, that. My wife might be a little disappointed. <laughs> yeah, <so>. maybe. Um, <laughs> but how... For people who are maybe at a point in life where they're trying to figure out what does God want me to do with my life, mm-hmm. right? You talk about being a uh, GE and wondering, you know, what's this all about? Um, mm-hmm. But they also feel like, you know, the only way they know how to pray is what they ta- what they were taught in maybe like second mm-hmm. grade. What's the first step? I mean, that's that's the reason I wrote the book, which is essentially to say that there there are one the ways that you've been taught to pray in second grade are great, right? I mean, the Hail Mary, the Our Father, going to Mass, of course, and asking God for things and petitionary prayer, which is really all I knew when I was twenty seven, and that's what most people know. And why? How could I know anything more? I mean, you know, no one had really taught me that. But the 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 invitation in the book is to say that there are many other ways of praying. And there, there's Ignatian contemplation, there's Lexio Divina, there's centering prayer, there's nature prayer, the examine, you know, on and on and on. And I, you know, it's those kinds of things are great, and I'm not diminishing them when you're in second grade. Um, but you know, as an adult, uh, it's it's an invitation to encounter God in a new way. Because look, if you look at it in terms of a relationship, if all your prayer is is petitionary prayer, which again is, I mean, I ask for things all the time, right? I mean, I, you know, I I want a vaccine basically that'll work, <laughs> yeah. you know, for everyone in the world. I want, you know, that's nothing wrong with asking for things. But if your relationship with God is characterized only by requests, then you have to say, what kind of relationship is that? You know, if, if I came up to, you know, if, if all I did to you in the office was, can you do me another favor, which I certainly <laughs> ask you guys to do me from time to time. But if that's all it was, I mean, literally, you know, we mm-hmm. never talked, we never had fun. We never talked about your life. We never, you know, we never went beyond do this thing for me. You would say, 
that's a very lopsided relationship. And that's, that's the way that oftentimes we tend to relate to God. You know, the flip side to this story that you tell about just about entering the Jesuits, but not being good at prayer mm-hmm. is that you were still able to make a monumental choice, like entering the Jesuits in a certain sense, like it was good enough for God and you didn't need to become an expert before you could do something great with your life, which I think is a temptation that. Yeah. I, I was actually shocked that looking back, I was shocked that they accepted me because I had <laughs> so, you know, all these people that, that I was with, you know, I went on this retreat and I was in this Kairos program and I went on this Emmaus retreat. I, I really, and I'm not, this is not false humility. I had no idea what they were talking about. Mm. Like what, how did, I, what is a retreat? How did you get over the insecurity of comparing yourself to other people? Hmm. And when it came to prayer specifically, yeah. it, it took a long time. And I really had to listen to my spiritual director, this fellow, mm-hmm. David Donovan, who has uh, died about 10, 15 years ago, who said, uh, you know, the way that God relates to you is the way that God relates to you. Right. And you don't need to compare yourself to someone else. And that also you have no idea what's going on inside that person's mind, right? When they're praying, you, you don't have access to that. And I tell you, there was, I don't, I don't think I say this in the book, but there was a, a real uh, difficult moment for me when I was a novice and entered with very little experience. The, the normal schedule of things for Jesuit novices is, at least in the old New England province, you would enter in August and, you know, you do a couple of months of training and working with the poor. And then in January, you went on what's called the long retreat, the spiritual exercises this point at uh, Eastern Point Retreat House in Gloucester, Mass. My novice director said, you're not ready for it. And so you'll be staying home. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, wow. While the other novice, who was younger than me, uh, <laughs> oh, man. but had gone to Holy Cross, which is a Jesuit school, and had been on all these retreats and you know spiritual direction, he went. And I was really you know, embarrassed. And he said, you know, this is just where you are. Right. That's it's okay. It's it's there's nothing wrong with that. And and I went in June. And um yeah, so it was it, it took a while for me to get over that. But now it's one of the first things I say to people in in direction, you know, do not compare yourself, especially to the great spiritual masters. Yeah. I mean, you know, you read Thomas Merton or Therese of Lisieux or Teresa of Avila, and you think, Well, I'm not nothing like that has happened to me. Well, you know, you're not any of those people, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, on the show, um, Ashley and I are trying to, it's this kind of insane thing, but we're trying to share our consolations and desolations from mm-hmm. the week every week, which, mm-hmm. um, and honestly, some weeks it, it feels just like really impossible, both, mm-hmm. both to like share with like an audience, but also just like, it can feel like, oh my God, nothing really, God, nothing happened this week. Like mm-hmm. what, what do we, what do you expect me to say? Do you think, is that to be expected? Like, or do you think that, Ashley, maybe me, not so much, has too limited a definition of what, what counts as consolations and desolations. That's so funny. Well, you know, technically, it's funny you should say that. And I know, I mean, I obviously listen to the show. You know, technically, you know, consolation and desolation mean the times when you feel God's presence strongly and when you don't feel God's presence strongly. So actually, you could say that you you might have a bad day and, you know, terrible things are happening during the pandemic, but you do feel God's presence. You're able to pray, you know, so, so you're not technically in desolation, but in, in terms of, I understand how you use it in the show. Um, I think that there are always um, things that we're called to look at, even in the midst of difficult times, right? Look, I mean, this whole pandemic has been awful for everybody. Now, does that mean that we should stop looking for things that are blessings in our lives? No. And, and that's one of the reasons I suggest the examine, 
which is the review of the day, because oftentimes we're so focused on the negative that we we're kind of blind and we think that there can possibly there can't possibly be any positive stuff. And you look, I'll I'll be honest with you. Sometimes in my exam and at night, I, I have to really remind myself not just to zip through the day and to go slowly. And then always, pretty much always, I'll say, Oh, I forgot about that. You know, I forgot about yeah. that kind of nice moment. I do. So I think God's always present. And we it is it is a it is an invitation to see where God is, even in the midst of the the darkness. Yeah, I for like the entire month of January, I mm. like the thing that was like getting me going was I would go for runs after work every day, mm-hmm. and they had they they invite everyone to bring their Christmas trees to to Prospect Park, and then they chop them up, and so that when you there are certain places you run by, and it smells like Christmas trees, mm. <laughs> and it was like the best part of my day, but it felt like that was too silly to like actually talk about mm. as a consolation, um, and and yet every time I did it, I was like I was like ah. I mean, this is great, but well, is that so? I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a beautiful thing. What? I but mean, is that a also, consolation, or is it just liking the smell of Christmas trees and well, like? <laughs> well, I would say, I would say, kind of, it's it's a grace, it's a blessing. I mean, consolation is in Ignatius. I mean, you know, this is it's a difference between the way it's used normally, which you know, mm-hmm. which is the the normal way you're using it, and then the kind of technical term. The technical way of looking at consolation is you are feeling God's presence at that mm-hmm. moment. You're uplifted, and it sounds like you are. Desolation is more like I'm not experiencing God's presence in anything in my life, right? But I would say, you know, yes, it's it's something that is not only it's it's in it's in the colloquial sense. Yes, it is a consolation. It consoles you, right? And it is in the technical sense because you are, I'm sure, feeling God's presence there. It's a that's a frankly that's a beautiful image. I'm in the midst of a pandemic. You're running through the park, and there are these chopped up trees, <laughs> right? And that's beautiful scent, right? Yeah. And what it what it says to us about Christmas, and absolutely. And I think what's lovely about that image is that it is sort of divorced from you know, all the craziness of, you know, getting a magazine out and doing stuff online. It's, it's purely nature. It's purely, um, sort of sensual. I think it's beautiful. I think that's a great image. And frankly, if I'd had, if I'd known that example, I would have put it in the book. Second edition. Well, then I can footnote you. <laughs> exactly. You talk in the book, how prayer, um, your prayer isn't going to change God's mind necessarily, um, but it can change you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm curious, either um, you know, how has prayer changed you, or as a spiritual director, how have you seen it change the lives of the people you direct? Wow. Um, yeah. The first thing I would say is that even though you know we don't know there, there's as they say, process theology, which is that God changes. Um, and then there's more classical theology. God is perfect. So how could God change? I still think it's important to ask God for things, right? So even though, and, and we don't understand, we, you know, it's a mystery how God works in terms of answering prayers, but I still ask for, you know, things to happen and miracles and, you know, heal this person, heal this friend of mine. I think that's really important to still ask God for that. But, you know, it, it, that's a line from C.S. Lewis. It, it changes me more. Well, gee, I, you know, I should ask you guys. I mean, I hope I'm more centered on God. I hope I'm more uh, kind. I think, you know, the the sort of fruit of prayer is really, um, you know, becoming more like God, becoming more compassionate, more merciful. I mean, look, I'm still, you, you guys work with me. You know, I'm not perfect by a long shot, but I think we become, uh, you know, like the that which we contemplate. I certainly see in other people and, and in myself as well, it also frees you, right? I mean, 
a, a good prayer life means that God is continually bringing things up for you to look at in order to free you. Right. And this is right. I mean, this is the theme of so many gospel stories. Jesus is healing and freeing and bringing back to the community. Um, we're speaking on the day when uh, we have the story of the Gerasene demoniac, right? Where Jesus heals this man and he is restored to himself, I think is what the Greek says. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's so all sorts of things. That's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting journey. Once you start out, you don't know where it's going to lead. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good place to segue to, we told our listeners that you were coming back on the show and they're obviously very excited. Um, and so we asked them for some of their questions. So if it's all right, we would like to oh, sure. maybe just rapid fire through some of these. Yep. All right. Are these like quick answers, huh? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. totally. If okay. yeah, no. right. Yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Has prayer changed you? Yes. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. First question comes from Becky. Um, how can I get better at listening and understanding the answer? to my prayers. And uh, uh, Melissa asked a related one that oftentimes it feels like prayers go unanswered for whatever reason, but how would you encourage someone to, to stay at it anyway? I'd say by trusting, uh, the, the the key insight for me is that, uh, this is Carl Rahner. Jesus's prayer was a prayer of honesty, uh, and then trust and then acceptance. So a lot of it's trusting that God hears you. Yeah. So Leaf asked a question that where he says, prayer is somewhat elusive to me. Um, you know, there are times when he has spontaneous prayer and he does the examine, but it doesn't feel like he's connecting deeply to God. Um, and Kimberly had something similar, saying she feels like she's phoning it in sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, how do you strike the balance between, you know, giving yourself the grace to, you know, just accept that sometimes you're going to fake it till you make it mm-hmm. um, and, and really trying to connect deeply with God? I think part of it's giving it time. Uh, like it's like any relationship. And then sometimes I say to people, if it's not happening in your prayer, in your sort of contemplative prayer, look around you, right? Look in your day-to-day life. And that's, I was just directing someone two days ago and that happened. He said, nothing's going on in my prayer and with God. And, you know, when we looked at his day-to-day life, there was a lot going on. So that's sometimes where it can be found. Mm. Question from Amanda. Um, She was listening to your keynote at uh, LA Rec um, last year on prayer in some of the language you use to describe people's experience of hearing and feeling God is the same that she and other neurodivergent people she knows have used to describe an episode or specifically a psychotic episode. And she realized that she probably doesn't experience prayer and God in the same way as others. Um, Like the feeling of someone speaking to you, feeling a presence of something else. Uh, What advice would you, Jim, give to neurodivergent people who experience prayer, God, and sometimes reality in a different way? Well, I'm not a psychologist, um, but I would say that oftentimes uh, the experience of feeling God is communicating with you is is more felt or intuited. And people should not be worried about actually hearing voices or having visions. Oftentimes it's something just, you know, words come into your mind. I mean, I use the image of my mom um, who a couple of years ago was looking out the window and said, do you love me, God? And she said she felt the words come into her mind, you know, more than you know, right? So, that's the first thing. Second thing is you have to discern. Does it make sense, right? Does it make sense with what we know about God? Um, would, would God say something to you that seems, um, you know, say violent or self-harming, something like that? No, never. But I talk in the book about how to discern those things. Um, but it's, it's, it's more, those words are more felt, I would say, and intuited than they are actually heard. Mm. 
All right, from Rachel, she said, what would you say to someone who thought that contemplative or centering prayer is actually demonic or the devil trying to snag people? So I think what she's getting out to here is this idea that some of these prayer practices are not authentically Christian. They maybe are borrowed from Eastern traditions and so that Christians should stay away from them. I, I also hear that someone has said this to her, but maybe <laughs> yeah. I'm reading into that. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I, I hear that frequently, particularly about centering prayer and it's always shocked me. And a lot of times, you know, the, the people who are saying this don't know the rich history um, of, you know, Christian prayer, which really embraces all sorts of prayer and specifically contemplative prayer and centering prayer uh, look, uh, St. Paul said we are temples of the Holy Spirit and God dwells within us. And that that's that's sort of classic Christian theology. And so where else would you meet God, right? So otherwise, if you can't meet God kind of interiorly, then there's no reason to pray. I mean, look, even Jesus goes off and withdraws as they say to pray. So, And he was, shall we say, you know, not possessed by demons. He's the opposite. <laughs> so I think we can trust these things. And also, look, trust the experience of the great spiritual masters. So these are, you know, th- these kinds of prayers have been used by, you know, people down the centuries, including, you know, the saints and martyrs. So I think we can be on pretty firm ground with them. I also think you're free to ignore people sometimes when they're telling you that your your prayer <laughs> yeah, practice is demonic. I'm, yeah, and it's usually it's usually kind of an attack on the person, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't be doing centering prayer. Well, look, if a person is doing centering prayer, which I do from time to time, and experiences God's presence, and it leads to an increase of love and charity, and they feel more devoted to God and Jesus and the church, uh, you know that that sounds like a pretty good fruit of prayer to me. Amen. Last one. Uh, this is also from Rachel. Um, Someone who's struggling with having an anthropomorphic understanding of God, um, what are some ways to pray around that? I, I could relate to this a little bit because someone mm-hmm. sometimes when someone says to me, like, you know, what would if Jesus were here, you know, having a conversation with you, you mm-hmm. know, what would he say? And I and I, it's almost like a non-starter because I'm like, I can't even do that for some reason. <laughs> you know, I I say to people, then you know, drop some of those images that you have. If the if the anthropomorphic images are getting your way of God, then then in a sense they're an idol. So get rid of them and, uh, you know, pray with something like presence, right? God is presence or use an image that works. I talk in the book about sometimes when I'm um, at the beach, the image of the ocean um, is, a, is an image of God. Now, look, God is not the ocean, right? But the, the immensity of the ocean and its sort of vastness and its depth are a great image of God. Uh, so, yeah, I'd, tr- I'd say try some other images. But what about Jesus? Is that not shortchanging him? Because he was a <laughs> He was definitely anthropomorphized, <laughs> anthropom, whatever the word is. Um, yeah, I look, I, I mean, the primary way that I relate to God is through Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, not everybody does it that way. And for some people, for whatever reason, they find Jesus um, sometimes harder to relate to than God, the presence of God. Oftentimes, it's the opposite. Actually, more often, it's mm. the opposite. I don't I don't relate to, say, God the Father or God the Creator, but I relate to Jesus. Is that okay? Well, look, even in, and the answer is yes to both of those things. Even in, you know, cl- classical, the most sort of traditional uh, Catholic theology, you know, it's the Trinity. They're all present to one another. Mm. So, it's it's okay to to relate to God in, 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 in whatever way you'd like to relate to God. You know, the key is allowing God to relate to you, right? That's the more important thing. Yeah. Great well, place to wrap up. We didn't get to everything on prayer, but I, we <laughs> promise everything is in the new book, Learning to Pray. Jim, I think you know we have one final question for you, and I think um, okay. and you've answered it before. Um, but if you could canonize uh, your fourth person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? 
you know, truly, I think the holiest Jesuit that I've ever met is Dan Harrington, who is a scripture scholar. And I, I was saying this the other night at, at uh, dinner to some Jesuits here that I truly think you could open up a, a cause for his canonization. So I, I certainly think he's in heaven and I would, I would probably canonize Dan Harrington, the great New Testament scripture scholar, just a lovely person, really kind. Is there a Dan Harrington book that if someone's never heard of him or wants to know more about him, you would recommend? Yeah. You know, it's funny. He hasn't written, he, most of his books are, are, you know, they're, they're inviting. Um, they're scholarly. I think uh, my favorite Dan Harrington book, it's, it's pretty heavy is, uh, the Sacropagina series, which is a common, a series of commentaries. Um, the one on Matthew is the one that he wrote and it's just, it's classic Dan. Uh, we used to call him a desert Dan in class. I may have told you guys this, um, He's clear, he's dry, and you can see what's coming for 10 miles. <laughs> so he's, he's a very simple, direct uh, way of um, talking about the Gospels, which I just loved. So yeah, try the Sacropagina series if you're ambitious. Awesome. Yes. All right, everyone go by learning to pray and buy it for your mom, <laughs> buy it for your friends. <laughs> Everybody. Yes, it, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, Jim, thanks so much for joining us Uh Good luck with uh, the media, the media blitz, the book promotion. I hope it's going to help a lot of people. So really, thank you for like putting so much into this. Yeah, my pleasure. And I really am. I'm grateful to be on. And thanks for those great questions and for preparing so much. And yeah, just thanks for your own prayers. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Jim. Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So we want to give a huge shout out to some new Patreon supporters this week. Uh, big thank you to uh, Jack Doolin, who I think you uh, are familiar with, Ashley. Uh, yes, he is my co-godparent for my beautiful niece, uh, Ellis, well, <laughs> and a former student of my sister. So thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack. We've also got Jeremy Kocher and uh, friend of, a, a dear friend of mine, Ned Bruni. So thank you to Jack, Jeremy, and Ned. Your support means so much, really, and we can't do this without you. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can do it in a couple of ways. One is subscribe to America Magazine. That's where Ashley and I work. It's where it's, it's our day job, so to speak. Um, so you can get unlimited access to all the content that America's putting out by subscribing at America Magazine magazine.org slash subscribe and you can get all that and more by supporting us on patreon um so if you want a subscription to america plus some jesuitical swag a newsletter from us access to uh special q a's that we do um we did a reading group uh last year we're going to do another one this year you can do that at patreon.com slash america media and now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I have a consolation, a really exciting one. Um, Ashley and I both spent uh, this past weekend uh, moving my sister, Allie, who Ashley has her own independent friendship with uh, outside <laughs> of me. Um, <laughs> but I have uh, been Allie's big brother for quite some time, uh, and I worry as big brothers do about her and how she's doing in the world. And, um, you know, this weekend moving into moving her into her own apartment, her own place, it's beautiful. Um, it was just a reminder to me that God's been working in her life. And, uh, you know, I, I sometimes underestimate the, the, uh, the depth of which my sister's, you know, interior life, 
takes place and being able to see her in her own place, in her own city, doing her own thing, um, was just a huge reminder that I, I don't need to worry so much about her, that she, she's got this, she's great. Um, and it was really hope inspiring for me to be able to do that this weekend. So, um, thank you, Ashley. Um, I, I know (laughs) that the, uh, Chipotle was not enough to thank you for the friendship you provided my sister, but I hope it helped. (laughs) No, it was great. And now she's kind of like halfway between your apartment and my apartment, which is great. Our pod is consolidating. It's true. (laughs) Yes. So it's, it's, it's good for Corona too. Yep. (laughs) What do you got this week, Ashley? Uh, I have a desolation, uh, that's kind of been sitting with me for a while. So Way, way back in March, uh, I signed on to be a co-chair of the adult faith formation at our parish. And at the time, I did not know what the year would hold. And I've just found it really hard to jump into that role when everything is online and to feel like, you know, real ownership of it, which has translated into me just completely abdicating any responsibility and feeling crushing amounts of guilt for ignoring emails about events and faith sharing groups and, you know, just the normal planning that goes into a committee like this at a parish. And um, instead of like dealing with that or admitting defeat and apologizing for, you know, not not really fulfilling the role in the way that I should. I've just been like avoiding it and putting it off. And it's like the worst kind of email guilt because it's one thing to like, I don't know, <laughs> do that to <laughs> to people at work and another to do it to your church. Um, and I don't know, I've just been like thinking about why it's so hard for me to just like be like, look, I'm, I can't, I can't do this or I'm sorry for the ways I failed and I'll do better. I've just been like stuck in this place of, um, just being disappointed with myself and being afraid of disappointing other people. And it's a really hard place to be in. Um, and I'm trying to get out of it, but like the only voice I am hearing right now is that like everyone is mad at you and disappointed in you and there's nothing you can do to fix it. And I'm just like stuck there. Um, And there are so many emails (laughs) that I'm ignoring. Uh, So, yeah, I'm hoping I can I can, you know, get to the place where I'm just feeling strong enough to be like, okay, the past year happened. I didn't do my best, but I can go, you know, there's always they're going to forgive me and I can start over. But I have not gotten there yet. Look, I don't I don't need to tell you that. I think everyone is trying to find a new way to say, sorry for the delayed response. <laughs> I think we can all just agree. We know why the response was delayed. Yeah. Um, so I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah. I hope not. <laughs> I know you're not. So. All right. Get us out of here. Will do. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.
Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.